Welcome back to Screen Time with Rokan and Richard Roper. I'm Richard Roper. Rokan is on assignment. I can rest assure everyone he is okay. I've been in contact with him. He's just got some stuff he's got to get done. We're going to proceed with Screen Time for the next couple of weeks, and then Ro will be rejoining us. This is, again, those Screen Time with Rowan Roper. And I want to remind you, this is all brought to you by AmericanEagle.com. The digital landscape is changing rapidly, and to compete in today's business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design and development, e-commerce, mobile apps, and digital marketing to drive your overall business success because they believe today's online world is your opportunity. Visit AmericanEagle.com today to get started. All right, lots of stuff to talk about, guys. We're going to start off in uh, the first segment here talking about some recent controversies and breaking news in the world of movies and streaming. We're also going to celebrate the anniversaries of a couple of great movies. And then we're going to talk about some of the best stuff that's out there right now in theaters and streaming and what not to watch. Uh, I want to start off by talking about, I don't know if you guys have heard about this controversy regarding Roadrunner. This is the documentary about Anthony Bourdain. Anthony Bourdain, of course, uh, tragically, we lost him about three years ago now. He committed suicide. Uh, came to prominence in New York City in the 1990s. Was kind of a rock star, punk rock star, celebrity chef. Really authentic, great chef. Wrote a book about his experiences, which became a New York Times bestseller. And then eventually became a groundbreaking, pioneering reality TV star. And there's kind of an irony here now because now the documentary about his life People are questioning the uh, authenticity of a certain element about that. We'll get to that in a moment. What I loved about Anthony Bourdain was, uh, first of all, he, I really thought he was authentic. You know, his, I mean, of course, there was a heightened version of him on some of the TV shows. He did so many of them. They started off as mostly about the food and then became these beautiful, amazing, gritty, sometimes daring and harrowing uh, journeys into the human soul. And he went all over the world, Anthony Bourdain, uh, really got to know the people as well as the cuisine and then challenged himself in so many ways and, and really had a, a career that, that, that paved the way for a lot of other reality-type shows. Now, the documentary about his life, Roadrunner, a film about Anthony Bourdain, I loved it. I gave it three and a half stars in the Chicago Sun-Times. It's from uh, Morgan Neville. He's the documentary filmmaker who put this together. And the film got uh, almost universal raves, and deservedly so, because, of course, there's a treasure trove of archival footage of Anthony Bourdain, not only the shows that he was on, but the behind-the-scenes footage. He was in front of the camera so much of his life through the 2000s and then in the 2010s, and then great interviews with people who knew him very well, people who loved him, friends. Really amazing stuff for the documentary. And this came out after the documentary came out. We see, as I mentioned, of course, Anthony Bourdain throughout the documentary, of course, we hear his voice, and what we found out was that the filmmaker Morgan Neville actually created an AI model of Anthony Bourdain's voice. So there are a few sentences, he says in an article in Variety, that Tony wrote but never spoke aloud. He says that we used AI technology, a modern storytelling technique, where they basically were able to feed 10 hours of real-life recordings of Anthony Bourdain into an AI model, and then the bigger quantity you have, the better chance you have of putting together the words in a way. We've all heard recorded messages where there are different options, and 
the voiceover person, the recording artist uh, gave us different options. But, you know, sometimes they're combining different elements to create something that sounds like uh, a real life delivered human sentence. And sometimes the inflection's a little bit off. They did, I think, an amazing job here. But a lot of people are kind of freaked out about this, uh, saying that this is not truthful, that this is ghoulish. Uh, Anthony Bourdain's uh, widow, uh, Atavia Busia, who... The filmmaker claimed she was okay with it, but then she came on Twitter and said, I was not the one who said Tony would have been cool with that. Another critic, a guy by the name of Sean Burns, who I really respect, said, when I wrote my review, I was not aware the filmmakers had used an AI to deep fake Bourdain's voice for portions of the narration. I think that tells you all you need to know about the ethics of the people behind this project. I have mixed feelings about this. I, I think a lot of this controversy could have been avoided if they had simply told people from the start at the beginning of the documentary, uh, a very small percentage, and it is a very small percentage, a very small percentage of the comments here where it sounds like Anthony Bourdain's voice were recreated using artificial intelligence, AI technology. I think the fact that it was used in only a few uh, s small segments of a nearly two-hour documentary has me wondering if maybe they shouldn't have done it and they just could have done it in a different way. There are all kinds of ways through the years that, documentary filmmakers have recreated the voices of people who are no longer with us. And I think if you're upfront about it, for example, there's an upcoming documentary called For Mad Men Only, and it's about Del Close. And if you don't know who Del Close is, you can Google him. Del Close is this comedic genius who essentially invented modern improv and influenced everybody from John Belushi and Chris Farley uh, through the Second City TV guys like John Candy and Dave Thomas, and then through the next generation, Tina Fey and Tim Meadows, an amazing guy. The documentary, For Mad Men Only, begins with this. All Del Close dialogue in this film has been taken word for word from recordings of Close himself. They at times have an actor portraying him, but they make it very clear that that's an actor portraying him. At other times, you'll hear voiceover. Might not be done by Del Close, might be, but they're letting us know from the start that it's word for word. The recent Ken Burns documentary on Ernest Hemingway. Of course, Ernest Hemingway's been gone for 50 years and all four of his wives long gone as well. They've all passed. They tell us from the start when they're reading letters or other exchanges, various actors are portraying it. Meryl Streep, Mary Louise Parker, Patricia Clarkson, and Carrie Russell voiced the wives in that documentary. I think with the Bourdain documentary, it would be a real shame if this controversy overshadows the fact that I think... It's a very fitting and respectful and uh, comprehensive look at a great American life. Here's another one for you. There's a documentary out right now called Vale. And this is about the amazing life and times of Val Kilmer. You know Val Kilmer. He's been on the scene for 40 years, came up with movies like Real Genius. He was Iceman in Top Gun. He's going to reprise that role, by the way, in Top Gun Maverick, which is coming out this fall. Uh, he was in Michael Mann's Heat. He famously played Jim Morrison in The Doors. He was Elvis in True Romance. I think he was robbed of an Oscar nomination for his portrayal of Doc Holliday in Tombstone. That's a portrayal that people talk about to this day. So Val Kilmer, in real life, Val Kilmer um, had throat cancer, had successful uh, surgery, but the surgery left him essentially having to use what we call sometimes a voice box. He, he's got, he's got a, a plastic hole in his throat that helps him breathe. He has to kind of close that up when he needs to talk. And it's, it's quite frankly, it's difficult to understand him. And Val will be the first person to tell you that. He's in excellent health otherwise and in good spirits. But 
for a full-length feature documentary about his life, and a lot of it features great archival footage, movie scenes, behind the scenes. Uh, Val Kilmer was one of the first people to have a video camera with sound, a portable video camera. I'm talking about late 70s. There's great footage of him backstage in a, at a Broadway play with Kevin Bacon and Sean Penn. All these guys, like 20 years old, and Kevin Bacon's like, that records sound as well as video? So cool. But I want to give you guys a little snippet here from the documentary Vale. And here's the interesting thing about this. Vale Kilmer's son, Jack Kilmer, who's a young actor, is doing pretty well himself. He's been in a couple of films. I've seen him do a few different things, and he's, he's pretty talented. He's extremely close with his father, which is really, really cool, as is Vale's daughter, Mercedes. They're in this film. Those are his children uh, with his ex-wife, Joanne Wally Kilmer, who we met on the set of the movie Willow. But in the documentary Vale, and they show us the actual footage of this, Jack Kilmer voices his father. And, of course, he kind of sounds like his father. Why don't we take a listen to Val? My name is Val Kilmer. I'm an actor. I've lived a magical life, and I've captured quite a bit of it. Yeah, push the button. I was the first guy I knew to own a video camera. Here we are, filming ourselves. Is that a video camera? Yeah. Oh, that's really cool, Val. I have thousands of hours of videotapes and film reels that I've shot throughout my life and career. Shut the video camera off. I will keep it on until we're rehearsing. Oh, damn. I was recently diagnosed with throat cancer. I'm still recovering, and it is difficult to talk and to be understood. But I want to tell my story more than ever. So I think, again, you know, however they wanted to do it with uh, Roadrunner, the, the Bourdain documentary, the Anthony Bourdain documentary, there are other ways of doing it uh, that I think if you're more upfront about it, we're getting actors to do this, um, this is from an actual audio recording. I think the AI technology, although it's really impressive, you got to at least tell people. Because when you're watching that documentary, you don't think you're hearing at any point a computerized version of Anthony Bourdain's voice. Now, continuing in that same vein, people call about talk about the deep fake and virtual and all this. This has just been announced. Whitney Houston's estate has announced that an evening with Whitney... The Whitney Houston Hologram Concert will begin a new residency at Harris Las Vegas beginning on October 26th. Now, this is nothing new as well, you guys. You know, I think we've seen like for at least a couple of decades these hologram appearances, um, whether you, it's at a you know, theme attraction sometimes, uh, you know, some of the Universal or Disney uh, theme parks, or I know they did some stuff with uh, Tupac, this virtual stuff. This is going to be an entire concert of virtual Whitney Houston. It's going to feature the virtual image and the voice of the late singer backed by a live four-piece band and background singers and dancers performing all the hits according to the promotional video. So let's, let's just think about this for a second. It's going to be the virtual image and voice of Whitney Houston. There's going to be a live band playing there. And then background singers and dancers who will be on stage. So the background singers and dancers will be there live in 2021. Whitney Houston, it will be all virtual and the band will be there. Now, this has been in the works at least since 2019. Again, it was announced by Whitney Houston's estate. They're going to share in the profits uh, from the Variety article. Despite questions about the ethics of using hologram technology to engage with the dead they're saying this is something that Whitney Houston would have wanted. You know, there's reports that she talked about this while she was still alive. I guess we'll just have to take a, the executor of the singer's estate for their word on that. There's a video out there. You guys can check it out if you just Google this of Whitney. The excerpt is from 
the hologram concert of Whitney Houston performing uh, I Want to Dance with Somebody. And you know what it looks like to me? It looks like a hologram of Whitney Houston interacting with uh, live musicians. And it's kind of cool that they can do it. Uh, you know, if it were some kind of exhibit in a museum where you'd watch it for three minutes, I could see that. To me, the idea of paying, and the, the tickets are going on sale soon, to me, the idea of actually paying any kind of ticket amount, I don't care if it's 20 bucks, I guarantee it's going to be more than that. To me, the idea of going to a concert and just sitting in the stands and listening to a live band, but Whitney Houston is all hologram, no thanks. I do think that's in poor taste. I have no interest in it. If people want to go, I guess it's not harming anyone, but there's, you know, one of the cool things about going to shows, even uh, residency shows at Vegas that are kind of tightly constructed when Elton John or Lady Gaga or Celine Dion, when they do these shows that are residencies, in other words, at the same hotel, playing the same theater, sometimes for years, they're not like full arena concerts. They're usually right around two hours long. There might be one encore song, uh, very, you know, same set list almost every night with a little variations, but there's still some banter. When Elton John, I saw Elton John play uh, the, in, in Vegas at the Coliseum there, and, you know, he still stops and says, you know, this is one of my favorite songs when Bernie Taupin wrote the lyrics and here's the behind-the-scenes story, and we'll have some fun with the audience. Uh, is the hologram of Whitney Houston, are they going to, again, do like the deep fake thing and have her saying, thank you very much, and what a great-looking crowd? That would be really creepy. Any attempt at interaction, I think, would make it even weirder. So... There's a lot of deep fake technology going on out there. I think in the world of documentary films, the the rules are certainly different. If they want to do a show in Vegas, obviously there's no deception there. People know what it is. As far as documentary films, just to circle back and kind of put a pin in this for now, here's the thing about documentaries, guys. And I, I love all the true crime shows that are out there uh, on Netflix and HBO and uh, Hulu, et cetera, more and more documentaries. And, you know, the documentary... You know, when you were a kid growing up, it was kind of always felt like your vegetables, like, oh, it's a documentary. This is going to be good for me. And that's the films that a lot of times that they would show in school. You'd see some documentary and it, and it has the, the art form has expanded. But documentaries, while documenting things are by their very nature going to be subjective. The fact that there are cameras in a room or turned on and facing someone is going to influence their behavior it doesn't matter if we're talking about a serious news documentary or reality so-called reality dating shows where of course everybody knows by now that so much of that has been encouraged by the producers and edited in a certain way but you go all the way back to nanook of the north which goes all the way back to 1922 and if you're of a certain age you probably were shown that in school and it was learned that the filmmakers had his subjects sometimes recreate things they were doing for his camera. Even the fact that this was, you know, set in a, in a place in time where the locals would not even be aware what a documentary is. The filmmaker was orchestrating events. So there's always going to be uh, some viewpoint from the director, some documentaries, you know, we see documentaries about historical figures. There's a new three-part series about Barack Obama coming out on HBO, about past wars. We talked about Ken Burns. I mean, these are very solid journalistically, not necessarily advocating a certain point of view. Other documentaries are pure advocacy, and there's nothing wrong with that either. There's a film uh, called Finn on Discovery+. Plus. Uh, Eli Roth, the writer-director who does a lot of horror films like the Hostel movies. He was also uh, in Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. Eli Roth, I give him all the credit in the world for this. He's a huge activist for sharks. And he did this 
brilliant documentary. He wrote it. He directed it. He stars in it. And it's all about the cultivation, uh, the slaughter, I should say, of sharks for their fins because shark fin soup remains a delicacy in uh, certain parts of the world. And it's a horrific look at this, this practice. Uh, and also a journalistically sound look at the legislation in various countries uh, outlawing this. But it's clearly from his point of view. And we get that when we're watching this documentary. So I think you always got to remember that when you're watching these documentaries, who's making them, what's their intention. And yes, there's always going to be some subjectivity. I wanted to mention really quick, too, before we take a break, we're going to talk about the anniversary of a couple of films. Uh, when Harry Met Sally came out, gosh, 32 years ago this week, one of the great romantic comedies of all time. What I love about When Harry Met Sally, Rob Reiner, of course, directed, and Nora Ephron wrote it, and um, we got uh, your Billy Crystal and your uh, Meg Ryan, who were so good together. Even though it's from a previous generation and a lot of romantic comedies from that generation have problematic issues, I don't think this one does. It asks the question, can men and women be friends? Will they always be in the friend zone or can there be a crossover into romance? And that's, of course, what the plot of that movie is. And even though things have changed so much and people meet each other online more often than they meet in person, there's still that question about whether or not a man and woman can just be friends or can that friendship eventually become romance? Let's listen to a clip from When Harry Met Sally. Men and women can't be friends because no man can be friends with a woman that he finds attractive. He always wants to have sex with her. So you're saying that a man can be friends with a woman he finds unattractive? No, you pretty much want to nail him too. A faceless guy rips off your clothes and that's the sex fantasy you've been having since you were 12. Exactly the same. Well, sometimes I varied it a little. Which part? What I'm wearing. You tell her about other women. Yeah. Like the other night. I made love to this woman, and it was so incredible. I took her to a place that wasn't human. She actually meowed. You made a woman meow? And guys, I also want to mention, it's the 20th anniversary of a film that I think is overlooked. Now, we mentioned Val Kilmer in the movie Heat uh, earlier in the podcast, and I love a great heist thriller. And there's a movie that came out in 2001 called the score. It does play a lot on cable, so you can maybe search for it and record it. Then you don't even have to pay for it, but if not, you can get it for a couple of bucks online. The score, directed by Frank Oz. What a cast. Robert De Niro, Edward Norton, Angela Bassett, and Marlon Brando in his final film role. Robert De Niro plays the obligatory lifetime criminal. He's a master safe cracker. He also has this really cool restaurant. He wants to get out of the business. He gets offered a $4 million payoff to steal this scepter, a, a national treasure of France that is stored in Montreal Customs. It's one of the cool things about this movie is it's shot in Montreal, uh, an underused film location. Edward Norton's the inside guy who helps him get in there, and then Marlon Brando is the guy kind of masterminding the whole thing. And I love the back and forth here. There's some great twists and turns. Edward Norton, he's done a couple of these roles where he's playing somebody who's impaired and has a problem speaking, but that's all just a ruse. He's actually this really slick, smart, duplicitous guy. But what I also love about this film is that Marlon Brando in his final film role actually gives a performance because unfortunately, later in his career, Marlon Brando was phoning it in famously on films like The Island of Dr. Moreau. And uh, even though he's in, unfortunately, terrible physical condition while making this movie, it's a real performance, a real supporting performance. It, it's really well done, beautiful editing on this. It's called The Score. It came out 20 years ago in 2001. Check it out if you get a chance. 
All right, we come back. We're going to talk about some of the stuff you should be watching, some of the stuff you really need to skip. But first, here's my friend Ro Khan with a word about Portillo's. Let me tell you about our friends at Portillo's, the finest fast casual experience you're going to have in all of dining. Portillo's, you know, not just hot dogs. A lot of you know when it started in Chicago, people were like, "Oh, it's a hot dog shop." Oh, wait. Oh, wait. We got we got Italian beef. Wait, we got Italian sausage. Wait, you got chocolate cake. <laughs> Oh man, it's just uh, it's just one of the great experiences you can have, and I, I think I just said this a couple of days ago. Mm-hmm. If you live somewhere where Portillo's is new in California, Arizona, parts of Florida, check it out. Go have the chocolate cake. You get a little slice of home if you're from the Midwest, you're from Chicago, or you're from the East Coast too, because you know that that food will be very familiar to you as street food. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, ah, oh, you know, I'm, I'm gonna, you know, it's gonna be so heavy. It's not. Mm. And can I just tell you something? Mm. The best thing about Portillo's mm. is that bun that they put the Italian beef yeah, on yeah. that you get now when you get that dipped and it gets all wet. Yeah. That is the perfect piece of bread. Mm-hmm. And you know, carbs be damned. You can do it once a month. You're sure. not gonna hurt anything. You'll be fine. Portillo's.com. P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S is how you spell that. Portillo's.com. Find a store near you or order online, and you can get it anywhere in the United States of America, portillos.com. Welcome back to Screen Time with Richard Roper and Rokan. Rokan is on assignment. Richard Roper, that's me. I'm here, so that's good, right? Because neither one of us was here. Ooh, that would be a kind of a quiet podcast. I'm going to talk now about what not to watch and what's good to watch, and we'll start off with a couple of films I think, unfortunately, you should skip. One of them is called Joe Bell. This is a a classic example of a really well-intentioned film that just is uh, overwrought, kind of tone-deaf, and doesn't do the subject matter justice. Mark Wahlberg plays the title character, Joe Bell, and in real life, Joe Bell, he had a teenage son who came out as gay and was bullied online and in person, and unfortunately and tragically eventually took his own life. And Joe Bell, the father, who admittedly was not the most understanding and not always there for his son, decided to walk across the country and have a Facebook campaign to raise awareness of bullying. So the film follows Joe Bell across the country. Let's take a listen to a clip from Joe Bell. Uh, My name is Joe Bell. And I'm on a walk for change. I'm walking across America to speak out against bullying. I'm getting picked on by these guys at school. Why is that? I'm just, I'm different. I'm just- That's not an answer, Jaden, all right? Because I'm gay. We won't let nature take its course, all right? It'll all be fine. It'll work itself out. Joe, what? It's not going to work itself out. My son, 15 years old, took his own life because he was bullied. This is your fault. You knew he was suffering. I mean, what did you do? It's a good performance from Mark Wahlberg. I think he really got into this character. He wanted to do this film. He has talked at length about his own very serious crimes he committed that were sometimes hate crimes when he was a teenager. And like Joe Bell, he has tried to atone for that through the years. I just think the way it was done, the way this film was done, we could see every twist coming, if you will. uh, And it just takes the easy route when it probably should have uh, tackled more difficult questions. It's not a bad film. It's something you could probably watch when you click across it one day. I think it could have been something special. Joe Bell not recommending it. There's another film that has just come out called Old, M. Night Shyamalan, who's one of the most polarizing directors, I think, of the last 30 years. And I guess with good reason, because when M. Night Shyamalan 
hits a home run. And he had one of the greatest first three films that any director has ever had when he did The Sixth Sense and he did Signs and Unbreakable, three great films. And M. Night Shyamalan was famously on the cover of Time magazine asking if this is our next Steven Spielberg, the master of the twist ending. He's done a lot of good films since then, but he's also done things like After Earth and The Last Airbender and Lady in the Water and The Happening, which, by the way, starred Mark Wahlberg, that are not good. So the premise of Old, which is written and directed by M. Night Shyamalan, uh, inspired by a graphic novel, uh, a group of vacationers go to this remote island. It's uh, some couples and their children. They go to this remote island. It's a very intriguing premise because once they're there, Everybody starts aging like one year for every 30 minutes. So the kids who are 6 and 11 are all of a sudden 11 and 16. And the adults start getting wrinkles. And grandma, well, you you can probably figure out what happens to grandma, right? And they're trying to figure out what's going on and how can they get off of this island. People start behaving in really mysterious ways. Why don't we take a listen to a clip from old? What happened to her? The body has decomposed. How quickly can that happen? Seven years. But she just died. Wait, where are the kids? Trent! Kara! Come here! Hey, have you seen my children? Mom? I'm, I'm right here. What's happening to us? My daughter just turned six two weeks ago. Mom? Whatever's happening to us is happening very fast. You have wrinkles. There's something wrong with this beach. Guys, here's the problem with this. Uh, It's got some of the strangest dialogue, uh, some of the most wooden performances from a very good cast, and I think they were saddled with this bad dialogue. And then when we finally get the big reveal about what's going on, why is everybody aging on this island to the point where they'll be dead in a day or two if they can't get off the island, when we finally are told what happens and why that's happening, it's pretty intriguing, but... Usually in movies like this, the setup is really good, and then the twist ending doesn't come through. This time the twist ending is kind of interesting, but the setup isn't good. It's the reverse of that. So we're left thinking, like, oh, they could have made a great film here. Uh, What I love about M. Night Shyamalan is he swings for the fences. Uh, In this case, uh, he struck out swinging. So you can avoid old. Let's talk about the positive. What's good to watch out there? And there's some great stuff. Um want to start off with a documentary we were just talking about, uh, the art of the documentary film. This is on HBO. It's called Woodstock 99. The original Woodstock was in 1969, and it was all about peace and love and tolerance. And, of course, people got really muddy. But, you know, effectively, it was about that positive hippie vibe of the 1960s. And the famous film Woodstock, again, you know, there were a lot of problems at the original Woodstock, too, with overcrowding and people knocking down the fences and, and, and drug and things like that, you know, drug use. Uh, But the film, you know, really was a celebration of the incredible music and the overall positive vibe. It won the Academy Award, actually, for uh, Best Documentary Film. There was a Woodstock 94, 25th anniversary, that was okay. Uh, Didn't have a lot of problems, but wasn't great. Then they had Woodstock 99, a 30-year commemoration of the original. This documentary is incredible, guys, because some of you weren't around at the time or others, you might have forgotten this, but... Woodstock 99, for lack of a better term, was an utter and complete shit show. It was a disaster. It was set on a a, a former military base. It was 100 degrees. Uh, Water was going for $4 a bottle, which would be like $7 a bottle now. 
Uh, and then the, the fact that the 90s, the late 90s, had become this really kind of uh, stressful time in America. Uh, the Columbine shootings had happened just a few months before this festival. The Clinton impeachment had been the year before. There was all this anxiety in late summer 1999 about Y2K and was the whole country and the whole world going to shut down because of technical problems. And then there was all this rage in the music world. You know, in the early 90s, it was all about the grunge. And then in the late 90s, as the documentary points out, you had the boy bands like, you know, in sync and, and all that kind of stuff. And you had the pop girl singers like Christina Aguilera and Britney Spears. And then you had kind of like the rage metal movement of Limp Biscuit and Kid Rock and all these sorts of bands. And Woodstock 99 featured more of those bands than anything else. And as the documentary does a great job of pointing out, there was this crowd of angry white males who really got hostile and increasingly angry uh, throughout the three-day festival. There were women who were in peril. Uh, there was a lot of violence. Fires were set. Towers were knocked down. And on stage, you had the likes of Kid Rock and Fred Durst of Limp Biscuit not really doing much to control the crowd. Let's listen to a clip from Woodstock 99. How are you guys doing today? Welcome to Woodstock. There is a sixth sense that you develop when you spend your life going to venues. Woodstock, baby. I can tell you 100 feet away what the energy in that venue is going to be like. It was not your parents' Woodstock. We got off the bus, and I was like, something's not right. It was like 1,000 degrees. I think we should leave. It's so hot here. Water was $4 a bottle, which is a ridiculous cost. Porta potties, unusable. You had kids rolling around in what they thought was mud. In an environment where exploiting women, you could get away with it. I also want to mention a film called Stillwater. This stars Matt Damon. You know, Matt Damon is an actor who's so natural that people go, oh, he's just playing himself, which is not true. When you look at the breadth of his career, he's done everything. He can do wacky comedy. He can do buddy movies. He's done great action films in the Bourne uh, franchise and serious drama. In Stillwater, I think he gives maybe his most grounded and authentic performance. Now, this is a story that's fictional, but it's loosely inspired by the Amanda Knox story. You remember that from several years ago? She was the American student who was in Italy, uh, accused of uh, murder, convicted, then retried, convicted and retried, and is now back home in America. Stillwater is a fictional story, but has uh, echoes of that real-life story and also just has the ring of authenticity. Matt Damon plays a guy. He's from Stillwater, Oklahoma. Uh, he's a rough type of guy he's done some time he works on rigs uh he's got a temper problem uh, there are more than one occasions in this movie where someone says to him you vote for trump and it's not a political film but you got the feeling that maybe he did which you know hey everybody's got their right to support who they support so he's a guy who is living a certain kind of life in oklahoma and then he gets on a plane to france and we're like why is this guy going to marseille well it turns out he's got a daughter played by the wonderful Abigail Breslin, who went to college there and while in college was accused of stabbing her roommate, who was also her lover, and killing her. He goes there to visit her and then gets word of a possible lead to find the real killer and ends up staying there, trying to solve this case on his own because even her lawyer has said, listen, hope is gone. She's got like five more years, four more years to serve. She did it. 
you can't give her false hope, but dad still believes in her. And it's an incredible story watching this guy who is not educated, who doesn't speak the language, but believes in his daughter, who will do anything to save her. The movie's called Stillwater. Check it out. And finally, my friends, I am so pleased to report that Ted Lasso season two, for those of you who dug the Apple TV Plus series starring Jason Sudeikis as the title character who is an American football coach who comes to England, knows nothing about their football, a.k.a. soccer, and then wins over the team. And it you got 20, 20, 20 Emmy nominations season one. Well, I am so pleased to report that season two is better. That's right, better than season one. I don't want to give away any spoilers here because I really want you guys who are fans of the show uh, to, to just enjoy every episode. If you haven't seen it, you definitely have to watch season one. Season two will make no sense to you. I mean, it's a, it's an ongoing series. It's a comedy, but it's an anthology, just like you know the great American comedy series throughout the years. If you watch just some of Friends, yeah, you're going to get some of the jokes, but it's best if you watch it from the start. So season two picks up eh, a couple of months after season one. A lot of the main characters are facing different sorts of challenges, but I will say this about season two of Ted Lasso. Reminded me of season two of The Office. If you go back and look at the first season of The Office, which was just a handful of episodes, uh, the characters weren't that much fleshed out yet, and they're a little harsh. And then there was the fact that some of the background players had like no lines or one or two lines. Same thing if you watch the first season of, for example, Cheers. What you got in season two of The Office was the Michael Scott character, of course, played to brilliance by Steve Carell, became fleshed out. He wasn't just a complete asshole all the time as he really was in season one. And even though he continued to make horrible blunders throughout the entire series, horrible blunders or blunders, whatever the case may be, we, we came to really like him and we found out that there was also a vulnerable side to Michael Scott and a human side. And the same thing with Dwight Schrute, played by Rain Wilson. But the other thing about season two of The Office was characters who were literally in the background in season one started getting their own story arcs. So different characters, you know, Mindy Kaling's Kelly Kapoor and uh, B.J. Novak's Ryan and even characters like Creed and Phyllis and Stanley and Angela, Oscar, they all started to get their own storylines. And we got that from them throughout the series, which really keeps a series going when you have close to a dozen characters who can carry a series or at least carry a specific episode. And that's what happens in Ted Lasso season two. Four characters at least that we just got to know a little bit in season one really get their own storylines and story arcs, and everybody's up to the challenge. All the episodes are great, but the fourth episode of season two of Ted Lasso, it's a Christmas episode, and if you know Ted Lasso, there's always a lot of pop culture references, uh, inside jokes and Easter eggs about other movies. Sometimes the characters actually quoting other films. The fourth episode of season two of Ted Lasso should be a perennial Christmas classic for everyone. I don't want to give too much away other than to say it ends up being an homage to a particular Christmas movie that's about love, actually. There you have it. All right, that's going to do it for this special edition of Screen Time. I'm Richard Roper. Rokan will be back with us soon. Want to remind you to please download subscribe and tell your friends. That's how we keep this baby going. It's because of you guys. And we really appreciate those of you who have been with us from the start. We're getting close to 50 episodes now. We've been doing this for a while 
and many, many more to come. And, of course, the Rowan Roper Podcast is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. AmericanEagle.com is a full-service global digital agency providing best-in-class web design, development, hosting, digital marketing services, and much more. Visit AmericanEagle.com for more information. We'll see you next time.